everyone, and welcome to Cisco Champion Radio. Today we are, well, we'll be chatting with someone who's been playing with sand. <laughs> Our latest victim is Hank. Hello. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, yes, thanks, Lauren. I am Hank Preston. I'm a, you know, I just make up titles usually when I introduce myself. Captain so Awesome. I, yeah, that's a good one. I am Captain Awesome yeah. here. Uh, I'm in the DevNet team, specifically our Sandbox team, and I work on our automation and data center architecture and applying all of the interesting programmability things that we talk about in DevNet and we teach to a real-world environment that has to stick around so we can learn about um, how these things work, and then we can relay that information back out as best practices, lessons learned, and ideally save somebody else the pain of something that we learn for you. So Captain Awesome, saving people from pain. GJ, how about you? Who are you? What do you do? Hi. Oh, are you on the Twitters? I say? am, yes. I'm sorry. I am on the Twitters as HF Preston. Good job. Hi, my name is GJ. I'm the CTO for uh, uh, Dutch-based uh, reseller, uh, and I'm a part-time network archaeologist. Oh, <laughs> fascinating. Okay, we need to get you like a fedora. Anyways. <laughs> and a whip. Yes. All right. Ken. My name is Ken Partridge. I work at WTI. We make out-of-band management and PDU stuff. I'm just an engineer. I'm a nobody. <laughs> My Twitter is kpartridge1, and that's where you can reach me. Fantastic. Was, was oh. there a kpartridge already? Yeah, it was. Jeez. <laughs> um, I'm Lauren Friedman-Albert, also known on the Twitters as Lauren. Um, and actually, you know what? Instead of me, Hank, what the heck is... Are you have been playing with sand. Tell us more. Yeah, so the, the DevNet Sandbox is a resource and it's a it's a free lab-as-a-service offering from Cisco DevNet. And so everything in DevNet is about helping developers build on top of the platform that Cisco has been delivering for years now with APIs and SDKs. Um, but we found that organizations and engineers sometimes don't have the infrastructure to test and try these things out. And so our mission in Sandbox is specifically to make innovation easy. And so we provide access uh, to hardware and software labs for Cisco platforms, um, third-party open source software, partners of ours. And so that if somebody wants to try out one of our new APIs, you can just come to our lab and grab a lab for free. Ooh, sounds cool. So the whole point of this thing is you set up a lab in six months. And what I was saying before is it sounds like a John Wick thing. Before, because like in imaginary time. In imaginary time. Okay, go on. Because you went from Dev Advocate to Net DevOps Mastermind. <laughs> okay. And I was thinking, is the only reason they give you this impossible task just so you wouldn't move to that new position? No, it's it's interesting how these things go through. I, I, I count it as like... Um, as self-punishment it's really kind of masochism is how it comes down is is i was doing the advocacy thing for a bit helping people understand what was what what did it mean to be automation helping engineers make this transition and then i decided you know i want to go back in I've, I've, I've been out of ops too long i've kind of been disconnected from the real world for too long so let's go let's go and, and apply these skills um and see what it really means in a day-to-day -day job for an engineer and so I looked at, around DevNet and said, well, where we had an actual data center where we had resources and we had networks and we had to deal with security and users was our sandbox is because as a lab, as a service, um, we have to build and maintain our own data centers. And so I joined the team over there. 
I'm not knowing that we were going to be given this this very fast task um, and deadlines to stand up our new data center as it went through, and it, and it was quite the timeline and, and the project. And we've we've come over the big first hurdles, but there's still plenty of work left to do because I think, as any engineer knows, is is the projects never end. So is that all you had to do there, or did other tasks come in over the six month period? Like I'm thinking when I heard it, I'm sorry. I'm thinking when I heard it, it's like, okay, that's all you did for six months. And then I'm thinking, mm, probably not. Yeah, so as a team, um, I will say that our normal workload, so in the DevNet Sandbox team, we were made up of a group of engineers and we build sandboxes for Cisco Portfolio. So a business unit will come out and say, hey, we've got this really cool widget. We want to make it easy for developers to get access to it. And so they submit a request for a new sandbox and, and our team builds an architecture. What does it look like? Um, we understand what are the use cases for it. We have to get documentation. We work with the advocacy team to understand what's the story. And then we construct that sandbox made up of whatever virtual and physical infrastructure it is. And then there's a whole layer of orchestration that has to go on it so that we can actually scale it and make sure people can hit a button and reserve it. And those are big projects. And the majority of the work we do is that. Um, when the new data center project came through, we knew that we weren't going to be able to maintain the same rate of sandbox delivery as we typically do. And so our leader, Tom Davies, leads our team, went through our backlog and what we had coming up actually for here for Cisco Live Europe, where we're at today, um, and said, okay, well, what are the absolute sandboxes that have to happen because of product launches or key pieces? And then just about everything else kind of got shoved later and so that we could free up cycles from the team. And so we did do other stuff, but it wasn't the same rate that we typically do. We had to kind of slow down on some of those other tasks because it was a lot of investment in, in energy and time and, and new pieces. So, so uh, what would you say were the biggest uh, hurdles you encountered during the build? Yeah, I, I would say the biggest hurdle for us was the timeline itself. Um, the way that it worked for those that, that don't recognize that where that six months came from is is following Cisco Live US in the summer. Um, we I went off on vacation and I come back and we had known that we needed to grow and expand and I we knew at some point we were going to build a new data center. But we got I got back and my boss told me that we'd gotten approval for the data center, which was awesome. Um, and then quickly he told me that we needed to be up and live by the end of the year, by the end of 2000, what was it, 19. And I looked at the calendar and it was less than six months. And so that timeline was the challenge because there's a lot of things that go into building a new data center. And, and I'll say data center, we didn't like start in the in a big empty field. We, we put in, we went into a colo facility. So we have okay. a significant yeah. cage space that goes in. So we didn't have to pour concrete, but that, that facility needed to have um, cage walls put up. It needed to have racks installed. It had to have yeah. power pulled. It had to have all of these things. And our facility partner took that for us. But when we looked at the six-month timeline, it, it, there was three months of that before we ever moved in that yep. the facility was being prepped. Um, so out of the six months, three months of it was before I could rack a single piece of gear. And that would leave us with two and a half months to go from I've been given the keys to the cage to being able to say when someone goes to developer.cisco.com slash sandbox, they're being delivered out of our new resources. Um, so that two and a half months, the majority of that time was going to have to be for our applications and orchestration and platform team. Um, many of the projects I've worked on with data centers in the past, the infrastructure teams, network, security, storage, 
compute they usually have months before yeah. anybody else comes into the data center to rack their gear, power it on, burn it in, put configs, test new things they want to do. I was going to have in our timeline about three days before I had to be able to say, okay, apps teams, you can start doing your piece, which meant I had zero time in the data center to actually figure out anything we were going to do. Did you sleep during those three days? Actually, no. <laughs> yeah, the we've got, and if you if you follow me on Twitter, we were posting pictures through that whole week when we were first moving in before we were turning stuff on. And most of those days in the cage were good sixteen hour days. Um, we'd escape for a little bit for lunch and come back. So as what I'm hearing through. is Susie locked you in a cage for three days. Yeah, there and there's pictures on oh, okay. Twitter. Oh, yes. and there's evidence. Okay, cool. There's, there's evidence out there. All right, there I interrupted you. Go on. No, it was it was a it, it's it was. I look back and we had a great time and it was a success that goes through. But it was it was a lot of stress. It's like an enormous amount of pre-work for that, though. Yeah. I mean, I can just imagine. I'm, I was listening to the other day, mm-hmm. and, you know, GitLab, Git, NetBox, Cisco, NSL, the PY, ATS, and the Genie all working together. Mm-hmm. And you must have had to do that way before you even bought any equipment. And that must have saved a whole mess of time. It did. And, that, and that's really the key. The only way we were able to successfully do that timeline that we had was that three months where they were building the, the cage out. I had to um, figure out what our new network does, topology was going to be, what technologies and architectures we were going to use, not even automation, just like, are we going to use VXLAN? Are we going to use VLANs? How are we going to route? Um, and one of the mantras we had is, is this new data center for us was seen as a chance to fix things we didn't like about our current infrastructure. And so the the quote that we use, and I, I talk about this all the time, is, is we were given the, the ability to innovate to the point of panic. And we pushed that through the whole piece. So what is everything we possibly w- would want to change? And so we changed um, and standardized on physical infrastructure platforms and software versions. Um, at the same time, we were also upgrading application versions. Also, all these things were going through. And what I needed to do was to tr- prove that this, because I proposed a bunch of new ideas and my team was like, are you sure it's going to work? What, what are we, why are we doing it that way? And I said, let me prove it to you. And so we designed using Cisco Viral, our network simulation tool. I built out a topology, you, actually using one of our sandboxes in our catalog. I reserved a sandbox. And then I built our new data center network topology, including the data center distribution, leaf spine pieces, um, our firewall layer, our DMZ routers, um, our edge firewalls to the internet. I even built a little simulated internet so we could have some clients and traffic and test pieces. And then we had the topology. And then I I tested all of our new um, architecture choices. And then I tested all of the automation we were gonna use to actually drive that configuration in in the viral environment. We were deploying new security technologies to combat um, some of the abuse we've been seeing and the spyware and malware, and we needed to make sure they would work. And so we actually connected this this viral simulation off to the actual internet so we could test and see if the policies went. And so I have, and we still use it for testing and validation today, today. It'll continue to be part of our pipeline, but we have this environment that's there. um, And so I was, we, we proved it out so well that the time, most of that, that time we took moving into the cage was just physically racking, screwing things in, cabling them up, going through. Once everything was powered up, it took me less than two days to push the, the entire network configuration out and get us live on the internet, the ability for our application people to start connecting in and doing some of the initial pieces. It was two days to go from out of, we pulled equipment out of the box from the factory. It was off a pallet and out of the box. 
and then into the racks and then we pushed pieces out and it just came up and worked because the automation had been proved the design had been proved there were a few tweaks here and there i don't want to say that it was perfect but it was close enough that we were able to meet those deadlines and by the time we left that first week of the build um, our apps guys and our platforms guys were starting to deploy their actual vms and systems into place for that yep. build did you borrow people who do the cisco live just no. de deployments and they like okay you guys you're used to doing this in two days come with me <laughs> i need you that would have been nice but uh, no we did it we did it all in-house um mm. we, i'll give you advice in the future then just come to me i appreciate that yeah come on a, a good uh, several of our engineers are actually um from ireland here in in europe and so we flew flew with a couple of guys over um i flew into our new data center still on the, the west coast so i flew into california from ohio and we just we just kind of hammered at it Right, hung out in the cage, unboxed stuff, figured out how to run cables, and had a good time, and it, it all worked out for us. So. Yeah. So, uh, what uh, what are the things that uh, you think that could have gone better? So, every data center build, you learn something new that I should have done that differently. Yeah, it's a it's a good one that went through. I think that the um. I wish I'd have known that question was coming. So I'm trying to think of, of, a, of, a, of a good realistic answer because there's some things that were better. I know we were we were doing the rack layout. So I planned that we planned it all how the racks would go through. Mm -hmm. And I and when I made the plan and it was months before we moved in, I, I, I had a reason that I was doing it. And then we racked it all up and we came back the next day and I was looking at it and I was like, I don't I can't remember why I did it this way because it didn't make sense. <laughs> did you and make I, notes? You're supposed to always do notes in your code. Well, th this was this was just like a drawing. This is like I'm this choosing. one goes here. I know, <laughs> okay. but it was good. I w I went looking to feel like, why did I do it this way, and I I eventually realized we I racked it that way because it was I did the racks on, based on a previous topology on how we were going to do traffic flow through our DMZ, and then I changed our traffic flow, but never went back and updated the racks. And so I was looking at it and I was kicking myself because I knew I was going to either have to make the other guys on the team like unrack part of the rack and fix it. Or I was just we were all just going to like hate the fact that it was racked wrong for the rest. And we came to the conclusion, you know, it's best to do it right. And so we took a couple hours to, to pull and reshift the stuff around. In that case, we fixed that one that was there um, before we moved out. Um, some of our, uh, our our patch panel structure and structured cabling could have gone a little bit better um, as it goes in. And then there's some some inside of the code, there's some, some esoteric naming convention things that I wish I would have done better, but now it's too late to go fix. Um, I'm doing a, a talk a little bit later on like how we approach this, like how, what, how did we phase it in? What did we use for it? And one of the points I make in the talk is that there's that quote that perfect is the enemy of good or progress. And I'm, I, that's true. But what I learned coming out of this is, is if you say, okay, I don't have to be perfect. Good enough is good enough. The, I think the next statement for that is, but there's some decisions you just get stuck living with, right? We often call that technical debt. Yep. And so I look at some of our code and I'm like, that's technical. I, like it's stuck. And there's, there's just at this point of where we're at, it, we can't change it. And it's, it's not terrible it's just weird things that probably will only ever bug me because i know it's there but yeah. there's a bunch of that stuff around yeah what blew my mind is a few years ago i heard you talk and you started talking about code as an infrastructure mm -hmm. and then for this project you know you had the source of truth mm -hmm. and i know it sounds really simple and like oh yeah everyone should do it but a lot of people still write it down on excel and everything sure. else 
And I was reading that you were using the source of truth to do validation tests and everything like that. And I assume that really helped once you put the real equipment in there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, so the, the concept of a source of truth is like, what, what is the way the network is supposed to be? And then, then make sure the network looks like that, which is the alternative. A lot of folks today look at um, what the network is, is the way it's supposed to be, which may or may not be right. And so for our source of truth, we use an open source platform called Netbox. And that tool is where it has everything from how our racks are supposed to be laid out to how the cables are supposed to be cabled together, um, what types of cables are supposed to go, uh, VLAN assignments for ports, all our IP addressing is in there. And so all of that was done months before we moved in. And so we used that to do the actual cabling. And then we were able to use some validation capabilities. So, so inside a netbox, I knew what it was supposed to look like. And now that the network was live, I could use tools like PyATS and Genie to go very quickly figure out like what's the network actually doing. And I could compare the two together and very quickly figure out where are their differences. And whenever there was a difference, in general, the, the, where it was wrong was the actual network. And so we went and fixed them. And so I found a couple of cases where, where cables had just been plugged into the wrong ports or we'd swapped them because everything's done in redundancy. And so there were cases where what was supposed to be 9 and then 10 was actually 10 and then 9. And so we, we fixed those up. Um, trying to trace back mistaken cabling things in a quick area is impossible. But having that, that place where I could programmatically ask, what's it supposed to look like? And then also very easily being able to programmatically say, well, what is it really? And then just do, and, and it comes down to a, uh, an automation function of just a difference. Show me the differences between these and, and where, where are the outliers and you adjust from there. Have people been using this the way you expected or have there been like surprises in how people utilize the dev, uh, sandbox? Oh, there's always surprises as they go through. I would well, say that was a leading question. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's the good surprises and the bad surprises. Um, with with success and popularity come come problems, and we've we've and one of the things that we're tackling a lot of the times are folks that I mean, we're a free service, we're a free cloud when it comes down to it, and we're out there and we want to make it easy for developers to access our resources. But occasionally, somebody comes in and tries to use us for something nefarious. So we're constantly, and we've a lot of our security changes have gone in to kind of fight some of those pieces. And so we no longer want to be somebody's Bitcoin farm, right? That's not a That's solution good. we want. Yeah. Um, I don't say it was a huge surprise. I think the bigger surprise was how long we went before that became a problem. Wow. And then once it became a problem, it became a big problem. Um, and so we've spent some time working through that. And a lot of the Cisco security tools have actually helped us um, prevent some of those pieces that are out there. And then there's the interesting surprises. Um, because we're a free service, our, our, so DevNet has a large community as a whole. Um, and then about 20% of DevNet members are active Sandbox users that have made Sandbox reservations. So we have over 100, I think 110,000 users on our platform that go through. And there's only a small proportion of those that we, we talk to regularly. And then events like here at Cisco Live where we get to talk to folks, we'll get stories where we've heard from from infrastructure teams and engineers that said, you know what, we we had this big project, we needed to figure out what to do. Um, we, we totally tested it using your sandboxes and we rolled it on and it went perfect. And we're like, that's awesome. And so it's it's nice to see that they're using our platform once what's there. 
Um, we've had um, startups and small companies build on top of solutions like Meraki and WebEx Teams and collaboration and build entirely new apps that have kind of launched different pieces out there and they've leveraged our platform for those. So those are always really nice surprises to hear that we've made that that positive impact for folks. And it embiggened your heart because that's kind of a sweet thing. Yeah, right? no, it, it embiggens my heart all the time. Yeah. In the sandbox, how long does it take to spin up one of the pods? To, to like build a new one or yeah. just when you hit the reserve button? When you hit the reserve button. So it depends on the type that's there. On average, if it's if it's a, our average time is less than 10 minutes. Our target is always less than 10 minutes. Uh, many of them are much, much faster than that. But some of the large collaboration topologies have dozens, <laughs> dozens of virtual machines that have to spin up and then they have to be um, post-provisioned in order. Some of our physical sandboxes, the way we, we typically do the physical sandboxes is the time they're harder to spin up and get prepared for the next reservation. And so we, on teardown is when we prepare it for the next one. And so when you hit the reserve button, ideally it's already mostly ready so that it can just be issued. And that's how we can get those times that are in there. Is the DevNet Sandbox just in San Jose or is it multiple places around the world? No, we're global. We, we have three data centers today. Two of them are here in the US on the West Coast and then one is in um, Ireland is our okay. European presence. Um, we're constantly looking and evaluating when can we grow. Um, as we've become and continue to become more successful, we're looking at st starting other sandboxes more geographic so that we can help. We get complaints occasionally from somebody that's maybe in, in India or China that it's just it's slow to access them because they're going like so far across the globe. And so we're trying we're looking in the future to be able to expand out. Okay. At the end of it, what did you personally want to do that you didn't have time to do anything or? Uh, for the, with the big projects? Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to, I talk a lot about continuous development or CICD for networking. Um, and the idea there is you work an automated pipeline into the changes you do. So you, you build some, some part of code or automation or configuration. Uh, you work on it locally. You commit it into your source control system. And then a pipeline kind of runs an automated test and build and validation. Um, we didn't have time to, to build that pipeline process out. So even today, we, we automate all the configurations. But when I make a change to a, um, a service or a standard, um, I have to go and actually kick off the test, kick off the deployments. Um, and it was just a matter of it, we needed to spend the time on the actual configuration pieces that are there. Oftentimes in projects, you the, the advice is usually build that pipeline before you build any code. And in looking back, maybe I could have done it that way, but we were there were so many moving pieces early on that I wouldn't have known what the pipeline needed to look like until I got to the end. By the time I got there, it was too late to build the pipeline. Um, now that we've come out of the big push for it, though I say that and, and we've been talking about what our next big push is going to be, um, but I'm hoping to go back fairly quickly because it's getting pretty old having to manually go run those commands every time we change something. So That was my next question. Was there anything that's not automated? So there's there's plenty of things. I mean, I, I talk a good game, but there's still plenty of things that are not automated because um, one of the things we had to pick was we had to prioritize what, what we're going to be the biggest bang for our buck in our investment in building the automation, and that's where we focused. And it really came down to... Um, three main parts of our infrastructure in the network got automated and everything else is is automated kind of but not to the level that we want it to be um, but those three are done really well and we've gotten huge value out of that um, but there's other parts of it that are still fairly manual okay we got to do this well you need to connect here and, and do this piece afterwards but there those don't happen as often so it's not as big a deal 
So you talked about uh, the continuous integration. Are you looking at some specific products to make use of that? Like for example, Jenkins or? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, when we, I, I advise everybody that you're gonna build yourself like a toolkit um, of what are the software solutions? What are the open source things that you might do? Um, and you have to be, you have to be diligent about what you put in your toolkit. And the, the thing I tell my team and I tell other people is every time we pick a new tool to bring into our toolkit, we're committing to be experts at that tool. We're committing to know how to install it, how to operate it, how to troubleshoot it. And so I am very selective about which tools and how many come through. Yeah, because it's tough with all the open source tools that are yeah. available. It's really easy to get, like, like in the beginning of virtualization, you had the virtualization sprawl with all the VMs for every task. And it's kind of the same with open source toolkits, right? Exactly. So for us, at the layer of um, source control systems, build server, and then artifact repository, where we put things like Docker images and things like that, we use GitLab. Yep. Um, because GitLab was a solution that met our needs, and it was one tool we could bring in, one tool we could operationalize that provided those three functions, rather than me coming through and saying, okay, well, we'll use we'll use GitHub for this, and then we're going to use Jenkins for this, and then we're going to use Quay for this. Uh, it would have been too much. We're a very small team, smaller than, than I'm even willing to admit on air um, <laughs> for the, what we do. And everything that comes in, I somebody has to be assigned to become an expert at it. And so when I when we evaluated, and I've been a fan of GitLab for a long time, we, it met those needs. And now we're even finding other things that we can do there. So we're starting to use it in addition for some of our, our documentation and wikis that get attached. Um, we got dozens of tools I could potentially use, but I don't want to have to go look in Box and SharePoint and OneNote. And I was like, just put everything there, and it's one less thing that we have to maintain. Yeah, that makes sense. So if someone's going in first time to the um, sandbox, how, how? I mean, I, I don't know if you guys even can monitor this, but how long does it seem to take them before they kind of get what they're doing and understand what's happening mm. versus just pushing random buttons. Not that they would. <laughs> Maybe I've had that experience. Yeah. You know, I, it's a great question, and I, I think it's a metric that we would love to better understand, but I don't think we have a good grasp of that. Um, we do know, I mean, we can tell from the point somebody becomes a new sandbox user. So you become a DevNet user, and then until you like click on sandbox to go look at our catalog, we, you don't become in our, our user base. And so we know from when people have hit us, and then we could if we, we, and we don't do this regularly, but we could go through and say, okay, users came in here. When was the first time they reserved a sandbox or what did they do? Um, it'd be an interesting metric to go through, but we haven't, I have, I don't think we've looked at that one yet. Um, I like to think that our, por our portal, like any application, isn't perfect. Um, and there are definitely things that we don't like about it that we'd like to improve. And we try to make those enhancements um, whenever we have the opportunity. Um, but it's, we like to think it's fairly intuitive that folks can find what they're after. You mentioned that you used Viral 2.0. I used Viral. I don't know if you said 2. What yeah, did I, say? I didn't. It, I said I said viral. <laughs> I did not say 2.0. Okay, sorry. Um, because I don't I, know if they're calling it that, man. NDA. Yeah. Jeez. Okay, go on. No, well, they're 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 announcing it and they're talking about it publicly here on the floor. So, <laughs> so I was actually talking with with the developers and the product team. So currently, what they're calling it is viral two. Um, I think that the, the the initial version number will be 2.0 um, on the piece. Um, when we built our uh, when we built our simulated network that I mentioned. Um, we used 
I built it with the the viral one. I don't know if they're calling, but the the more traditional that folks are used to viral. Um, I built it there for a couple of reasons. Um, one was I had a sandbox that was a, a, a viral one version, and one of the things I wanted to do was take some of the things we did with this and then be able to turn it around and offer it to other folks to be able to use. And so right now, we, I've had, I published in a few places um, a modified version of our actual topology that we use for our sandbox um, out that people can actually reserve one of our DevNet sandboxes and then spin up a network topology that looks kind of like our, our net network um, that goes through and kind of see how it goes through and the power that's there. Um, I couldn't have done that at the time and even today with Viral 2 because we don't have a Viral 2 sandbox yet. And even, I think we're, I think they're in EFTs or beta testing right now. So there's a few people that have got it outside of Cisco. Um, but even today, it's not fully publicly released. And so one of the things we try to do um, in DevNet in general is that whenever we show an example, we try to do it in a way that people can replicate. Um, we do occasionally have sandboxes for beta and pre-release code if business units want that, um, but we didn't do that with Viral. So I've stuck with Viral 1, we'll call it for currently. I will say I was talking with the team, they're close enough to releasing, that next week um, when I'm back from Cisco Live, I plan on installing a new Viral 2 installation and then porting over our topology to Viral 2 and then using that for our next rounds of pipeline tests and things. Any sandbox questions? <laughs> Well, I actually, I think I'm done. Okay. Yeah. The, so what, anything else new that we can pick your brain on? Oh, geez, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's all sorts of stuff. I can talk and talk and talk. I know. Um, that's not I hard. Know. I would say, I mean, the, the biggest thing is to, to keep aware of, and I'll, I'll do a, a pitch for the, the new DevNet certifications that are out, because that's a big, big conversation, I think, everywhere. Um, I don't know exactly when this podcast will release, but in February, I think like 24th is when the new certification tests go live for yeah. Pearson. Um, and that's one of the most exciting things that we've got coming through. And a lot of focus inside DevNet is around that. We've been building new sandboxes that will be part of some of the official training classes. Awesome. And so there's new training classes coming out for the DevNet associate, for the DevNet professional pieces. And so some of those training classes will leverage our sandboxes as for the portfolio on the platform. And so that's been a big push. And then um, I believe Susie announced that we're actually going to be looking and the first 500 people that get DevNet certifications will be part of this DevNet 500 club, which will be kind of neat to, to see those first folks go through. So we're excited yeah. to see those go in. I know um, the champions are like thrilled and like, ooh, I want to be part of the 500. Everybody wants to be special. Yeah. Well, they, um, excuse me, the champions are special. Well, more special. It's oh, like okay. extra badges to go through. It's like, okay. here's a new tchotchke. You're ah. the DevNet 500. So. All right. Well, thank you. This has been very informative and also fun. Thanks, guys. Yes. I thank you. appreciate it. Thank you for stopping by the podcast domain. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Awesome. And um, y'all can listen to Cisco Champion Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you steal your podcasts from or actually download them for free.